the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, uh, in our first two segments, we're going to be talking about something, of course, that's been in the news lately and can affect every one of us. And for a change, it's not COVID, uh, but it's something that's bad anyway, and that is computer ransomware and how that can get involved with our computers and shut us down and isolate us from the rest of the uh, civilized world. Uh, To talk about that tonight, we have Trent uh, Millerand from uh, Cloud9 Computers, and they uh, they provide our computer security and safety. Trent, thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, ransomware. Uh, what what a mess. What can you give us the official computer engineer definition and explanation of what is ransomware? Okay. Yeah. Sure. I can. Uh, the best way to describe it is it is. Um, Basically, it's a set of tools uh, that hackers use to basically um, to get into your systems, and then then they run this tool, which then it encrypts or we'll say locks away is a better, you know, more uh, less of a technical term, I guess. It it, it encrypts your data um, in in a way that is it makes it unaccessible to you going forward. And so, you know, once the hackers into your system, they'll run this these these tools. Um, it will encrypt all your data or all your important data, um, and then they will just uh, they'll send you a note at the end and say, you know, sorry, your you know your data has been encrypted. If you would like to get your data back, um, you know, you have to pay this ransom, and they usually will list a ransom and then a way to pay them, which is usually Bitcoin or some type of cryptocurrency, which is uh, untraceable for the most part. And that's that's kind of the general hmm. way it works. Now, there's a little bit of a twist recently on it, which is instead of um, not only not only will they just encrypt your data and demand to pay a ransom to get it back, but they will if you have if you're like a medical facility or something that's supposed to be protecting your client's data, they will threaten to go public with it. They will threaten to post it online all your all that all your client's confidential information. So that's another twist to it if you don't pay the ransom. Well, when you mention encryption, uh, that's sort of the first time, for me anyway, I've heard that that's how ransomware works. It takes your existing uh, data and it, it mm-hmm. translates it into an encrypted uh, database of some sort that only the hackers know how to get into it. Is that essentially it? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, I mean, your files will still be on your system, all, all your data. But it will just be, you know, in a in a randomly in a random format. You know, you won't be able to read it or do anything with it. It just just in base in essence, it's junk. And they have the only and the hackers have the only key to unlock it again, basically. Now, now, what do they do? Do they uh, take away the encryption or give you the encrypted code? Nah, 
Well, if you pay the ransom, um, you know, that's that's the piece they'll give you. They'll give you the encryption key. And in, in, in more recent times, though, not only will they give you the encryption key, they'll also give you the tools uh, to decrypt it. So they'll give you a program, basically, with the key to decrypt the whole thing. To bring it to get all your data back, basically. Now, as a, a computer company with computer engineers and people who know all about computers, when someone calls you with a, a ransomware computer lockup, their data has been encrypted. Uh, other than pay the ransom, what, what kind of strategies do you guys have? Okay. Well, there's really, there's actually only really, you know, if, if you've been attacked and your data has been encrypted you really only have two options you either have either option one is that you have great backups um, that we can restore from you know you have operation you know a lot you know when I say great backups I mean backups that have you know um, been running for you know consistently and, and are proven to be able to restore from those are good backups um, so we'll say that's option one is that we can come in and we can just restore your data from the most recent backup which is hopefully very recent and you're up and running that's the quickest way to get you back up and running again and then you don't even have to pay the ransom so backups if you really think about it, backups are like the key piece that that can stop kind of you know kind of can kind of stop these guys um, you got to have that's like the last line of defense. It's the most important line. You got to have the got to have good backups for your company. Um, the next step, though, um, if you don't have good backups, you're kind of you, you're just in a bad spot. Your only option then is to pay the ransom, and then the other uh, and hope uh, the, the key piece to that though is the negotiation part. So whatever they whatever the initial ransom that they demand, the amount that's never the amount that you should pay. Uh, that usually you can really reduce that. 50% or more. So that that's that's kind of an art form is negotiating with the hackers to get that down. How do you negotiate? What, what leverage do you have when you're t talking with a um, with a hacker? And, and by the way, I would never recommend doing this without calling you guys or, or someone who's really skilled and knowledgeable about computers. But if uh, someone is to try to do this on their own, what what can they argue to negotiate down other than they gotcha, you know? Well, I mean, so a hacker, first of all, they don't have a lot of time. If you think about their, what would I say, their, their costs to do this are minimal, right? So the only thing is their time. So they didn't have a lot of skin in the game to begin with. So um, I think they, for the first, the first thing is the hackers don't view this as, you know, something they've spent a tremendous amount of time on, therefore they should get their value back. So, um, you know, they're willing to negotiate on that because it was so easy, number one, for them to do it. So, um, you know, they'd rather have a good amount of money than none. Uh, the other thing, too, is that they don't know the value of your data. So what I mean by that is that um, they may um, – they may – so – you can kind of bluff them in a certain sense by saying that the data that they've encrypted really isn't worth that much. Maybe it's worth a ton of money. I don't know. Maybe it's worth millions of dollars, but they don't necessarily know that, right? So there's a negotiation part in that and that trying to get them to see that the data that they encrypted really isn't worth that much to you. So it's really because you're going to only pay a ransom up to the amount it's worth to you, not to them. So And, and they don't know what that value is. I guess that's the best way to describe it. Do do the hackers do they get to look at all of your data? Do they get to 
basically take over your computer and check out all of your your menus and uh, all of the the data you have and the information you have that they might be able yeah, I mean, to judge for themselves. Yeah, yeah, and for sure they definitely try to do that. I mean, before an attack ever happens, um, for the most part, they've probably been in your systems a while, maybe months, maybe longer, um, and they've they've determined when they're going to attack. Meaning that they usually try to strike on a you know at night on a weekend or something where there's less likelihood that someone would stop at mid attack. You know, they they kind of know your you know they're going to be they're going to be looking for opportunity points and they're going to be trying to figure out how to get into the most systems possible to attack. So they, they spend a good amount of time doing this, but that still doesn't mean that they know what the data um, is worth. Not not really. You mentioned stop and mid-attack. Um, if you're on the computer and this is happening like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Monday, uh, yeah. what what would you likely see on your screen if there is a, a cyber attack in progress? Um, well, if you're if you're on a crypto attack in progress, most likely you would, I mean, you would see error messages uh, that would just start randomly popping up from random applications, just because as this be as data is being encrypted, programs that rely on those files are are getting are going to you know spill out errors. I guess that's one way. But the other way would be you know just any directory that you have files in, you would notice their literal names are changing into some random format on the fly. You can literally watch it happen. I've seen it, we've, we've seen it happen. Uh, so I, I've, I've watched it happen in progress. Now, if you see something like that happening in progress, you're best to just uh, shut the machine off and, dis- and unplug it from the network and then call somebody. It's not, you wouldn't want to turn it on again. If you could shut, you know, that's, a, that's, that's the fastest way to stop an attack in progress is turn the machines off and then and then isolate them mm-hmm. and then turn them back on and, and work through the process. So that would, that would be hit the, the the power button and do sort of a hard immediate shutdown. That's right. And that's or, what, by the way, that's what most of these uh, big, um, you know, you've heard, you know, the Colonial Pipeline, the JBS, you know, these, you know, when they say they're shut down, that wasn't necessarily the virus that shut them down, the crypto attack that shut them down. They shut themselves down so they could isolate it and eliminate it. Wow. Well, you know, it, it seems like it's something we all have to know. Does uh, we just have uh, a few seconds yet before we have to take a break here? Mm-hmm. But uh, let, let me tell everybody, we're talking to Trent Milliron from from Cloud Nine, and uh, we're talking about ransomware and, and how your computers can be infected, and how to avoid that and how to minimize the effect on you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Trent uh, about what to do and how to prevent this from happening. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Trent Milliron from Cloud9 Computers and IT Services. And we're talking about the question of having your computer system taken over by hackers and demanding a ransom. And uh, Trent, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, very interesting what you're having to say about uh, this whole ransom process. Thanks. You know, when uh, we talk about it, we we talk about the big um, companies that are being shut down by hackers who are coming in and asking for ransomware. It doesn't happen every day, but 
in your business, uh, this is more common than we're hearing in the news. How common is it that smaller businesses are being hacked and and held for ransom to to get their their data back? Yeah, I mean it's just extremely common. I mean, you know, it's a. Uh, I was, uh, you know, just estimating. I, if I had to guess, you know, for every one that you hear about in the news, there's probably fifty or hundred, uh, you know, small businesses that are breached. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much almost, almost every single small business, uh, has, you know, has dealt with some type of breach, um, you know, in the last few years. So, um, it's either, you know, either something small where it was just their email or it was their entire systems, you know, so, um, you know, we've all gotten those emails. Uh, from a friend or colleague at another business, they you know they basically it emails as them. We've all gotten those. Um, that's a breach. You know that's that's a, that's a hacker that's gotten into that that person's email and, and sent out emails to all of their contacts in their their list. So um, you know this is this is fairly common, super common. What what kind of um, amounts of ransomware? Do uh, people face when they're they have a small business? They're, they're not a pipeline <clears throat> or anything. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah. talking about thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars, tens of thousands. I think uh, ten, tens of thousands is it's usually tens of thousands. I, I don't I don't think I've seen a ransom yet that's under ten thousand. So they're all in fact most of them start out around. I mean, if you're talking smaller business, ten. Uh, we'll say you know. Tw- when I say small business, I'm thinking, you know, 20 employees or less, maybe, you know, uh, it's going to start somewhere mm-hmm. in the, in, it's going to start somewhere between 20 and 50,000 probably um, for your ransom. So like I said, you can negotiate that, that down and, and it's also going to depend what business you're into. Well, when it's negotiated down then, uh, what, what are the lowest amounts you've been seeing? Uh, somewhere around, around 5,000 or less. Around ten. Yeah, oh no. Usually, it's it's hard to get below ten. They, I mean, ten, ten, ten is uh, ten's a pretty common um, for really small business. Ten's pretty much about as low as they're going to go. And when when people pay it, they, uh, I think we mentioned they have to pay by uh, like Bitcoin or some other uh, cyber, you know, coin. Uh, and you guys help with that? How how does I wouldn't even know where to go to start buying Bitcoin to pay off a someone holding me hostage on my computer. Uh, can you help with that? And how do you and how do you do it? Well, I wouldn't. At first, I wouldn't even suggest that anybody even any, you know even if you're familiar with crypto coins, if you go out and just go buy coins and then you pay them. Well, for, first of all, there's this idea, right? Think of it that. Um, you know, not when you pay them, they don't always send you the key. That's that's one thing. So, so that's something that most people don't realize is that I believe it's it's. I mean, most of the time they will, but I think it's like one in four times they won't even send you the key. You just pay them and it's gone forever, and you're not going to get your data back either. So that's those are that's not super. I mean, like I said, it's less common, but um, but it does happen. Um, but even if you're familiar with getting cryptocurrencies, um, you can usually, you know, we'll help you. Uh, that's one of the things that we do is we will help you obtain the cryptocurrencies. We'll help you negotiate the ransom with the ransom person. And then the other piece to this is, is once you get, um, once you get the key and the tools to decrypt things, well, that's just, it doesn't, it's just not like your systems just start working again. So yes, 
uh, it decrypts your files, but basically everything is still broken. So we take we have to rebuild all of your systems and then take the data and put it back to back where it used to be. So it's not um, an instant a process like pay the ransom on back up and running. No, you're still down for probably a week. So that's why the best defense against this stuff is backups. Having really good up to date backups um, is the way to beat this in the end. Does does it matter whether or not you're on the cloud or, or whether you have your own server or uh, what what's the best way to back up uh, consistently and continuously? Yeah, I mean it. You know the back backup systems, whether you're whether you're fully in a hosted environment in a data center or you're on premises, it, all the backups are relatively. It's still the same type of thing. You still need to have backups. There's no. Being in a being in a cloud without backups is is no different than being on prem without backups. So so you need to have you know you need to have uh, working and verified tested backups. That's that's your number one defense. And then of course you know you can go. There's a lot of other things you can do to just prevent it from happening. You know from the get go, and that's that's also a good way to start. Well, now we, we talked about all the the misery and sadness associated with being hacked. Uh, how how do you get hacked? Is it still what we heard years ago, and that is don't open emails, don't open attachments, don't go to websites, or don't you know what what are the don'ts here? And is there a way to prevent yourself from just getting it without acting on your own? Sure. I mean, there's no um. There, uh, it's possible to get it without acting on your own, but that's like I believe that's that's something. If I remember the stats, something like less than four percent of attacks, you know, don't involve a user. So it's still like ninety six percent of attacks involve some type of user error, and so um, it's usually going to come from. And still, it's like uh, again, we're going to email. Emails like eighty percent of all malware gets gets to your systems through email. And you know those are people that usually will will run a, you know run some file on their machine that they got as an attachment. Um, that's that's how they'll you know get in and put a, what we call a foothold on the machine. A foothold is when they've installed you know when you've done the work for them, you've installed a piece of software on your machine that establishes what's called a foothold, and then that allows the uh, attacker to really get into your system anytime they want to without you knowing. Wow, and and uh, I, I suppose that the hackers are sophisticated to the point where they're able to make emails look like they're coming from someone maybe already in your your system, <clears throat> so they're, they're going to tempt sure. you to open it. Oh, sure, that's the and, whole. Um, um, yeah, they're going to either look like they sometimes they look like they come from internal, or a lot of times they're you know maybe vendors you've dealt with or customers you've dealt with things like that. How how do we know when something that looks so familiar and has been looking very similar to what we've been seeing is something we shouldn't open? Is there any rule of thumb on that? Well, there's, um, I mean, in general, yes, there are a lot of rules of thumb. It's, you know, there's, <clears throat> I think one of the main things, at least if it comes through email, is, um, you know, there there are, first of all, it's really good to have one, one more of the, you know, the more modern, we'll call anti-phishing, anti-spam systems that are out there now. You know, 365 has a, you know, Microsoft 365 has a, has a package which, you know, really does a pretty good job of filtering a lot of this stuff out. 
And, you know, so, you know, all, my company provides a overlay of security as well for email. I mean, email is the number one way it's going to, the malware gets in. And it is hard sometimes for the end user to decipher for themselves what is and is not a legitimate email. So it's, it's kind of good to let the computers do that sometimes. sometimes. But even with that, they'll get through it on occasion. And that's where... You know, security, what we call security training, is is something that everybody, sh every company should be doing. Every employee should have to take it. There's a lot of platforms out there. This is, and I'm just saying this, you know, as something that we provide to our clients. It's, it's included with our services, which is a, um, a security training platform. So we give it to all of our clients to use. And we, you know, if they're, it basically walks the employees through all the things they should be looking for. Uh, from email to correspondence to, you know, uh, what an attack looks like, all that stuff. It's really training is, I, you know, training the users to look for this stuff proactively is your number one defense uh, against ever being hacked. Because it, remember, it's going to come from a person. More, more than likely, it's going to be someone in your company that does something on accident. So it's important that they um, understand, you know, how significant the threat is. And the only way to do that is through good security training. So that's the first step. And then, um, you know, the other step would be, you know, two-factor authentication, which is, you know, um, a, uh, a way to force a, you know, it's basically a code. Um, it's a, it's a, once you put your username and password in, you have to have your phone with you, which will generate a code, and that code will allow you to enter your system. So that two-factor piece is another big, big way to keep hackers out as well. And and that that is from Cloud9, and you guys do this. Before we go, uh, we're talking to uh, Trent uh, Milliron, and he's with Cloud9, and they do all the security stuff. Real quick, your phone number, for the record. Yeah, 216-393-2484. Uh, and uh, so if you need computer security, give Trent a call. But Trent, thank you so very much for, for uh, all this insight into malware and uh, ransomware. Thank you very much. No, you will. All right, thanks. Thank you, Trent. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Matt Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And in the next two segments, we're going to reflect back a little bit on what we've gone through for the last year plus here with COVID-19. And a returning guest we have is David Stebbin. Thank you for joining us. He's a law professor. He's a history professor at The Ohio State University. And he's the author of a book called Promised Land. And we're going to be talking to him about... Uh, the historical significance, if we can draw any conclusions yet on what's just happened to us with regard to COVID-19. Uh, David Stebbin, thank you for joining us. It's great to be on your show again, Nick. Thank you. Well, you're, you're quite welcome. You know, the last time we had you on was last year, July of 2020, and uh, a lot's happened uh, from then yes, to now. My, my goodness. And I, I thought it'd be great to talk to a historian to see what, if any, things you have been feeling and, and concluding up to this point uh, that we have uh, sort of have written history for a year and now we're going to have to live with whatever has happened. Pretty much, what what's your take on how this COVID-19 pandemic 
has affected us from a historical perspective. And there's a number of things that we can talk about. We can talk about the politics. We can talk about the, the virus itself and the vaccination process and so forth. Well, what's the first thing that jumps out at you? Well, I'm primarily a political historian, and so the effect on the election uh, and the national political conversation was to me very uh, profound, historic. More people voted uh, as a percentage of the turnout than at any time since 1900. And really, it's really the highest turnout ever, because in 1900, most women were not part of the electorate. So when the modern electorate came into existence in 1920 with the adoption of the 19th Amendment that enfranchised women everywhere, uh, we've had 100 years of that, and this was the highest turnout uh, since that modern electorate was created. And, and part of the reason for that was that the pandemic got people more interested in what the government was doing because it was a crisis and there was a debate about how well President Trump and his administration was addressing the crisis. And there was also a lot of pressure on the government to step in economically as the pandemic worsened and millions of people lost their jobs and so on. Uh, and then the pandemic itself affected the election because the administration of the election, because it made it dangerous uh, in certain places anyway, for huge numbers of people to congregate to vote. And so a lot of things were done to make voting easier. <clears throat> and uh, the, <clears throat> the percentage of those who voted remotely by mail greatly increased. And historically, we've only allowed that, with the exception of a few states, if you're absent for some very compelling reason from your voting jurisdiction. Otherwise, you have to vote in person. If you make it a lot easier to vote by mail, you tend to make uh, a higher turnout, and that conferred some partisan advantage. On balance, I think most experts would agree that the eased restrictions on voting made it easier for the Democrats to amass uh, an electoral majority, and, which they did. Uh, the President Biden, uh, candidate Biden, won over 51% of the popular vote and 306 electoral votes. Uh, and so the, it changed the administration. In other words, uh, defeating an incumbent Republican president is an unusual thing. It doesn't happen very often. And for swing voters, uh, the view that the president's handling of the pandemic was not good enough seems to have been decisive. So it changed our government. And along with it, it changed who's in charge in Congress and so on. Democrats ended up winning just enough Senate seats to control the Senate, and they lost seats in the House, but they still had enough left over to control the House as well. So, so there was a kind of political revolution uh, as a result of the pandemic, in the sense that I, but for the pandemic, I suspect the odds would have favored President Trump's reelection. So, so that's historic in terms of the turnout and the result. Uh, and there's also just the, oh, go ahead. I just had a question at this point, uh, as an sure. observer, as a historical observer, uh, with regard to election fraud, the allegations of election fraud, the difficulties uh, as a lawyer with not having evidence that's going to be uh, at least valid enough for courtroom uh, business, the uh, the technical election validity, do you think that was 
uh, valid enough, or did we really miss the boat in this election, or is it too early to tell? Well, but one could have, going into the election, legitimate concerns because so many more paper ballots were mailed in and had to be handled. In other words, one thing that does change when you have a lot more uh, people voting by mail is pieces of paper uh, being delivered and so on that have to be handled by opened envelopes opened, ballots handled. If you're mostly using voting machines, it's different. Uh, and so uh, there, but the, from what I can tell, from what I learned from the news media and so on, the evidence of substantial fraud simply is not there. But there are concerns about this, you know, and there's, and this is relevant today because there's a big debate about whether or not these relaxed rules for voting should be made permanent. And uh, Democrats in Congress would very much like a lot of those changes, the ones especially that helped their party uh, and produce that very big turnout, uh, have them become permanent. And most Republicans are wary of that. Uh, and and you could be a thoughtful person in the middle who says, well, you know, it could be somewhat dangerous to make it easier for all of these pieces of paper to be used instead of going to voting machines. There's also an objection to vote by mail made by some, which is that it tends to take place over a longer period of time before the election, say the weeks running up to the election. And so what that means is that when people cast their ballots, they're not all working with the same amount of information because one of the good things about having mostly in-person voting on Election Day is that when people troop off to the polls, they're all working with the news that's available as of that day in terms of what the candidates have said and done in the campaign and so on and what's the state of the economy and everything else. Whereas if you widen the window in which people can cast ballots, sometimes by weeks, then people may decide based on information that then changes by election day. And so there are you know, some legitimate objections to moving towards a system that is heavily based on vote by mail. On the other hand, the in-person version uh, requiring most people to vote in person is burdensome in a different way, of course, because it's not a national holiday. People have to fit in voting around their obligations, domestic, work, whatever. And for a lot of people, that's hard to do in today's sort of 24-7 world. And so there's a legitimate debate about how best to run an election in the 21st century. Uh, but because the rules that you develop can confer advantage on one party or another, the inability of the two parties to agree on this uh, it reflects the sort of larger polarization and hyper-competition of the two parties that's going on in the country as a whole. So it's very hard on nonpartisan election officers and so on because that's often they're sort of caught in the middle. Uh, in other words, people are just trying to administer the election under the existing rules but being pressured by strong partisans to, to change the rules in ways that make it easier for their side to win. The uh, 2020 election, with the uh, with the the questions about whether or not it was done right, and with the, the things such as the mail-in ballots, and paper ballots, and so forth, uh, have we seen much different that would have changed the outcome? On the one hand, and then on the other hand, 
do we have a threat to democracy and our current way of doing things that requires maybe a complete fresh look at how we, we handle national elections? Right. Well, I think there's a sense among partisan Republicans that a more normal turnout, uh, because we had this historic high, would have favored their candidate and their party more. Uh, and it's hard to know that, right? <laughs> you can't rerun the election right. with less turnout and figure it out. But historically, very high turnout elections, at least <clears throat> since the 1930s, when the Democratic Party in some sense assumed this modern form under Franklin Roosevelt, high turnouts tend to favor the Democrats, not always, but usually. And so the view is that, you know, the rules were so easy that the, uh, all kinds of folks voted who don't usually vote, and that produced an outcome that a lot of Trump supporters did not like. Uh, and, and we're going to take a, we're gonna, hold up there, David. We're going to take a sure. short break. We're, we're talking to author and historian from Ohio State University, David Stebbins, and uh, we're talking about the historical significance of what we just went through with regard to the COVID-19 year of 2020. We'll be right back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Tonight we're talking to Professor David Stebbin from Ohio State University, a historian and a lawyer and a law professor. And we're talking about the historical significance of what we just went through with COVID-19 and the election of 2020. Uh, David, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You know, as we're talking about the election and, and how things have uh, become suspicious uh, as to whether or not there was election fraud or not, uh, curiously enough, uh, these problems are not really the target of complaints here in Ohio. Well, what does Ohio stand? What happened in Ohio this 2020 election? Right. Well, the thing that is peculiar about Ohio is that Ohio generally is a bellwether, a state who's, who's, that gives its votes to the winner nationally. There are very few exceptions mm -hmm. in the last century. There's 1944, but that's a special case because Thomas Dewey, the Republican candidate who lost, chose uh, Ohio Governor John Bricker as his running mate. And it's generally viewed that Bricker, who's the last Ohioan to appear on a national ticket, helped Dewey win Ohio, even though Dewey lost to Franklin Roosevelt nationally. So, and the other exception besides this past year is 1960, where Richard Nixon uh, comfortably defeated Senator Kennedy uh, in Ohio, even though Kennedy ultimately won the election. So only three times in the last hundred years have Ohio voters preferred the loser. Uh, and, it's, and it's unusual. And so it tends to uh, be jarring that you know, something is wrong because Ohio usually gets the result right. And it wasn't close in Ohio. President Trump won easily here. Now, there is something special to an historian. What is most significant about the leaving Bricker aside in 1944 as that special case, an Ohioan on the ticket, uh, the two great exceptions in the last 100 years are 1960 and 2020, and those are both situations where the Democrats nominated a Catholic as their presidential nominee. 
And Catholic presidential candidates tend to underperform in the state of Ohio. There have been four major party Catholic nominees, uh, Governor Al Smith of New York in 1928, um, <clears throat> Kennedy, of course, Biden, and John Kerry in 2004, and he narrowly lost Ohio. And so even though Catholic candidates for president, if you want to put it that way, who've been nominated by major parties are two for two, or two for four, they've won twice and lost twice mm-hmm. over the last hundred years, they're over four in Ohio. Uh, and it, that has something to do, I think, with the southern part of the state, which is a more southern kind of electorate, a lot of Southern Baptists, uh, and the white folks in that world tend to be more resistant to voting for a Catholic candidate for president. And so, to the political historian, when the Democrats nominate a Catholic for the presidency, Ohio tends to behave more like Indiana than it does like Pennsylvania or Illinois. So, uh, so there's something anomalous there uh, uh, for Ohio Republicans, especially about the fact that their state clearly voted for President Trump and yet uh, Trump lost. Uh, and so there are. I mention this in part because there are a lot of people. What's odd about this situation is, given that. Uh, Joe Biden finished oh six or seven million votes ahead of of President Trump and won a popular vote majority and 306 electoral votes. What's strange is there's this ongoing belief uh, shared by millions of people that there's something there was something not quite legitimate about the election, and that's of course right. re- resisted. But one thing that's strange is this view that somehow it wasn't done properly or the, the result would have been different. Uh, and so that haunts us in 2021 and is a problem for democracy. In other words, if you don't believe that the president was legitimately elected, that weakens your confidence in the whole system. And uh, in terms of democracy and where we are at voting, it's really interesting because many political philosophers argue that uh, High turnouts are signs of a healthy democracy, even if the two sides in, in our two-party system clash, right? And so from one point of view, you can view 2020 as a sign of great health in American democracy because the turnout was so big. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that many of the supporters of the losing presidential candidate don't believe he fairly lost is troubling, and it contributes to this uh, polarization in Congress and so on. Uh, and it's frustrating for a lot of people. In other words, they want Congress to be productive to, uh, in, in a sort of general sense. Uh, most voters seem to want Congress to work for the two sides in Congress to work together and so on. But uh, shifting to a related topic, <clears throat> the proposed infrastructure bill in Congress there, if President Biden clearly would like Republicans to cooperate with Democrats in Congress in passing this infrastructure proposal, and there's a group of, you know, a bipartisan group that's working on it, but they're making so much, so little headway in terms of what they've come up with being broadly acceptable that there's also a second track, just Democrats working among themselves on the proposal that. The president has sent. And that's just a symptom of how 
dysfunctional in some ways Congress is at the moment. Of course, you know, we have this divisiveness that we've had for some time now, and it looks like it's going to continue on. When we talk about infrastructure, we're talking about the obvious need for infrastructure repair, maintenance, and upgrade. Uh, where where are the sides going? Where are the left and right going where they differ? Uh, they all have to agree to some degree that we need infrastructure investment, and without it, we're just going to continue to uh, deteriorate. Well, right. Although there's a the the left and the right are partially divided regionally, in part because there's a relationship between political philosophy and region. And so, the most Republican and most conservative Republican part of the country now is the South, which, to an historian, is sort of odd still because for so many years the South was overwhelmingly Democratic, and now it's overwhelmingly mm. Republican. Um, but the point is. Many Southern Republicans, from Mitch McConnell on down, tend to view infrastructure as much more of a northern or frost belt or blue state problem than a sun belt problem. Uh, and so they, uh, I think Mitch McConnell himself, the leader of the Senate Republicans, has referred to the infrastructure proposal as a blue state bailout. In other words, it will hmm. use everyone's tax dollars to rebuild the crumbling infrastructure of northern states uh, at the expense of southern ones. So there's that issue. Another is the size of the proposal. In other words, President Trump's proposal was a little over $4 trillion. And the bipartisan group currently has a price tag of just over $1 trillion, which isn't anywhere near. right? And there's related to that is a debate not just about the needs, you know, of infrastructure, broadly defined, and people differ on what infrastructure is in today's world, but the point is there's also what America can afford and how will it be paid for, and furthermore, how much economic stimulus is required to heal the damage done by the pandemic. And then there's yet another factor. In other words, President Biden has been very clear that he would like this great big uh, infrastructure proposal to help revitalize middle-class incomes and the middle class in America. And he's emphatic about that. I mean, the nickname when he was in the Senate for all those years was Middle Class Joe, and he comes from that world. And so he's an affluent man now. He's made money and so on, written books and all that. But the point is he identifies with the middle class very strongly, and President Biden does, and he really wants those dollars to go for projects that help rebuild the middle class economically. And one consequence of framing it that way, the proposal that way, and because, of course, there's been this economic damage done by the pandemic, is the infrastructure proposal, as far as the polls suggest, is very popular. 70% approval, something like that, from uh, in voter surveys. And the Republicans who've been fighting it know this. I can see that. We're right. running out of time, but uh, I mean, the idea of where we are, we're at the tip of the spear, so to speak, with regard to history un unraveling here in front of us, but uh, with regard to infrastructure and the election and politics generally, uh, we thank you for your insights, and we'll have to have you back again, maybe in another several months to find out what's happening. But thank you so very much for your time. You're, you're welcome. Thank you. That was 
David Stebbin from Ohio State University. And uh, that concludes our show for tonight. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing